0: You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The number of female physicians has been steadily increasing over the past few decades. The number of women physicians grew from 11% in 1980 to 26% in 2004. In 2005, over 55% of medical school acceptances were for female applicants. One medical specialty that does not reflect the same rise in the rate of female representation is neurosurgery. Less than 6% of neurosurgeons are women. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Greenwich, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Katrina Furlick, the first woman admitted to the neurosurgery residency program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Welcome, Dr. Furlick. Thank you. Dr. Furlick, not only is the percentage of female neurosurgeons low, but the overall number of neurosurgeons has dropped in recent years. First, let's talk about why women are not choosing this specialty.
1: Well, you know, it's hard to say, and I I think things may change now that the limits have been placed on the number of hours you can work per week. But it's just traditionally been considered one of the, the tougher specialties, and tough in terms of The residency, tough in terms of your life, even after residency. And so I think that does make some women shy away from it for all sorts of reasons, family reasons, lifestyle reasons. That's just been the traditional thought.
0: What are the myths and realities about life as a female neurosurgeon?
1: Well, the reality is that when you're out in practice, you do have some control over your life. And you have control in terms of which hospital you choose to practice at. You have control over uh, your partners, who you work with. And so it's different from when you're a resident. As a resident, you you have very little control. As a fully-fledged neurosurgeon out in practice, there's much more control. And so that makes it easier to to deal with the specialty, and I think uh, people have to keep that in mind and and see the light at the end of the tunnel, that you can tailor your practice to some degree.
0: Do you know how many female neurosurgeons there are?
1: Well, it is roughly 5% of the entire field. There's about roughly 4,000. The number depends on whether you consider board-certified versus board-eligible, there's a couple little details there, but roughly 4,000, maybe 4,500, and about 5% are women, so that's about 200, 250 or so. So it is a, a pretty small number. You know, like I said, I think that might grow slowly over time, but it's still low.
0: What was it like for you to be the first female resident in your program?
1: It's funny. It wasn't as big of a deal as people probably expect. I was really treated like one of the guys, and I didn't really think about the fact on a daily basis that I was a woman in a male-dominated specialty. People just accepted me for who I was, and I got the job done, and I didn't feel different, luckily in any way. Now I was the butt of a few harmless jokes. You know, whenever we would do spine surgery, and, and if one of the guys had difficulty bending one of the one of the titanium rods, the attending would say, "Do we need to call Katrina in here for this?" You know, that was a real blow to the ego. But luckily, it was those so, sorts of lighthearted. Sorts of jokes. And I never felt like I was the butt of serious discrimination or anything, anything severe like that. That's different, obviously, from my predecessors who would have been a generation ago. But luckily, the way has been paved, I think, for women in neurosurgery.
0: What kinds of responses has your gender or your age triggered in colleagues and patients? The
1: funny thing is that age is a bigger deal, I think, than gender out in practice. When you're a resident. All the residents look pretty young, and the patients know, oh, that's a resident. That's not my real doctor, but it's a trainee. And so, looking young isn't a real problem. Now, out in practice, I'm the surgeon. People do question because I, I tend. People have told me I look a little bit younger than my my age, which is not a good thing. Even though most of the women would die for that, it's not a good thing as a surgeon. I have to always answer to the fact that, well, I I am experienced. I've I've done this operation a number of times. This is not my. You know, I'm not a trainee, and I have to kind of explain the situation to patients who walk in the room and and their first question is, wait a minute, how old are you? They'll actually say that as the first question. So I have to get over that a bit. And they don't say, oh, you're a woman. They say, oh, how old are you? That's usually the stumbling block.
0: It'll be interesting as you age when that's maybe no longer the first thing that people notice, because it's probably would be a lot less politically correct to point out that you're a woman than to say, gee, you look young. You promised yourself as you began your training that you would not become a bitter female surgeon.
1: I said that because as I was going through my training, I didn't have that many role models as a woman in neurosurgery. And, and so my role models were you know, the men who were my mentors, and that was perfectly fine. I did come across a few women who were older who had maybe been surgeons for, for 20 years and who did seem to have this bitterness. And for some reason, it really struck me. And almost scared me, and I, I vowed, you know, if I ever get to that point, I'm either changing careers or I, you know, I have to do a serious reappraisal of what I'm doing because I'm not going to go through my career being bitter about it. And, you know, in retrospect, that's not just a male-female phenomenon. I have plenty of people I know who are bitter male surgeons, so I don't want to give the impression that it's just just a, a woman thing. But it does affect me more, more when I see a woman who is, you know, very accomplished in her field but very bitter. And probably just worn out. And it just makes me think, you know, I want to I want to prevent that from happening to myself.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach XM two thirty-three, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin and my guest is Dr. Katrina Furlick, author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, a brain surgeon exposes life on the inside. Dr. Furlick, the professional organization, Women in Neurosurgery, is organizing a mentoring program to match students with practicing female neurosurgeons, as well as a virtual mentor on their website. How important do you think a female mentor could be?
1: I think it's an outstanding idea. I know about that program, and I think it's, it's a great, great idea. I think it would be important because a lot of women have the obvious question of how to raise a family in a surgical specialty, and it's not as easy for a man to answer that question. And so I think for that main reason, that's why this mentoring program would would be helpful. You know, from from a professional standpoint, you know, how to get a job, what kind of specialty to go into, what's, you know, subspecialty within neurosurgery, that can be easily answered by either a man or a woman. I don't think that's a gender-related question. But blending family with with work, I mean, that's the age-old question that almost any female professional has, not just in surgery, but it would be nice to get advice from from an older woman in in the field.
0: You certainly did not have a female mentor, as you were the first female resident in your program. Do you think it made a difference, and how important is the mentor relationship to the student neurosurgeon?
1: Going through my training, I had some incredible mentors, and the thing I would caution anyone on is there's not going to be one person who's the perfect mentor. You You may have somebody who's an unbelievable surgeon but not a great family man or a great family man, but not a great surgeon. There's always going to be something that you may not want to emulate. And so you have to kind of pick and choose what qualities you like in different people. And so I don't think there is a perfect mentor, at least I've never come across one. And you have to find out you know, what qualities you like and create your own blend for your own career. That's another piece of advice I have for people. Don't expect to find the perfect mentor. That may happen. You might get lucky, but if not, pick and choose from from a whole bunch of people.
0: Mm-hmm. I ran across another organization, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, that had a mentoring program for males and females. Their mentors outnumber the residents by two to one, and that must reflect something going on here. What are some of the challenges facing the profession in general currently?
1: In terms of general challenges, there are numerous challenges. One is obviously the whole malpractice issue. If you get any number of neurosurgeons in a room together that'll be that'll be a topic that flies around for quite a while. But neurosurgeons and OBGYNs have the stiffest malpractice rates and face the difficult challenges in that regard because we deal with you know life and death situations, neurological decline. So we kind of are a setup for lawsuits. That's one challenge. Um, another challenge is just the changing scope of what we do as surgeons. I mentioned that the technology changes and sometimes in a field like vascular neurosurgery, were not as needed as we were before, whereas in spine surgery, the field is growing. So, you know, you may go into the career thinking I'm going to specialize in in this disorder, but turns out that the radiologists take your business, and that may be for the best of the patient, but not the best for you. So you have to you have to be flexible and be willing to change your career accordingly.
0: What would you predict would be necessary in terms of the changes that need to be made in the profession in order for the profession as a whole to evolve?
1: The idea of a mentoring program is great. I think other things that can be done is just maybe more education about the career once you're out of residency, you know, what to expect, what are the pitfalls. You know, it's common knowledge that a good percentage of neurosurgeons will change their practice within the first few years, either because it's not a good fit or they they decide to live somewhere else. And just kind of more guidance on how to pick the right job and the right partners is something that we don't get a lot of training in. And that that would be helpful to, to set up your career.
0: You ask yourself some tough questions in the book about how you will feel over the length of your career, about difficulties such as the inconvenient schedule, juggling a family, lawsuits, and so on how have you answered yourself? A
1: few things. When I wrote the book, I didn't have a family aside from my husband. Now my husband and I have a a one-year-old daughter. And so, you know, I'm I'm kind of currently feeling my way through that whole process. And obviously, I have a full-time nanny and I have a lot of help. And I have tried to make my schedule more reasonable and see patients only for a certain number of hours a day. And there are ways of modifying your schedule once you do have a family, if that's what you want to do. And I think it's just being open to being flexible and knowing what kind of help you need.
0: Dr. Furley, can you talk about the business of getting greater reimbursement for your work, if you can establish that the injury or problem was work-related?
1: i touched on that briefly in the book. That's an area of the business I don't really enjoy getting into too much because it's it's messy. Dealing with the finances is just not my cup of tea. But there is a phenomenon of, you know, work-related injuries where the surgeon gets paid significantly more if it's considered work related than if it's not. And that's very very tricky when it comes to for example spine problems. A herniated disc for example is a very common thing that we see. And it's hard to get across to a lawyer that herniated discs usually occur gradually over time as the disc weakens and almost anything can set it off. You can sneeze and the disc will herniate if it's weak enough. You can get you know you can be stepping out of the shower and pick a towel up off the floor and the disc herniates. Or you might happen to be at work and pick up a chart and your disc herniated. So, you know, considering that work-related is, is tricky. And I always argue, you know, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. How do you know if it's work-related or just aging of the disc? So, you know, your decision then hinges on on how much you're going to get paid, and that's that's a tricky phenomenon.
0: Yeah, and you talk about common perceptions about recovery when there are disability payments.
1: Right, and that's a well-known phenomenon. That's, this is nothing new that I'm discussing in the book, but it's well-known that patients who are being compensated while they're injured, in other words, if it's a worker's comp, tend to have worse outcomes than patients who are, say, self-employed and who are eager to get back to work. So that's another tricky phenomenon that when you see... A patient who is coming in as a worker's compensation case, most surgeons will, before they even see the patient, have this, whether it's rational or not, they'll say, oh, this might be a difficult patient in terms of the recovery process. They're probably not going to recover as well as the last guy I saw who is a doctor who's going to want to get back to work really quickly. It's a prejudice only because we've seen it over and over again, and there's been many papers written about it. Obviously, you want to treat the patient as compassionately as possible and always do the right thing. But in the back of your mind you're thinking there might be a problem with, with recovery here. It might be slower, might be more difficult.
0: Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on REACH MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin and my guest has been Dr. Katrina Furlick, Clinical Assistant Professor at Yale University and author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, a brain surgeon exposes life on the inside. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Furlick. Thank you. I enjoyed it. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.